Welcome to the Upper Room Podcast. Thank you so much for stopping by. I'm Pastor Carl McLaughlin from Calvary Pentecostal Church in Euless, Texas. We're located in Dallas-Fort Worth, where 8 million call DFW home. Whether you're tuning in to Sunday or Wednesday's message, we pray that you will find words of encouragement. It is our mission to provide a positive and encouraging voice in the midst of uncertainty. I pray that you will be blessed by today's episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Upper Room Podcast. We are thankful that you've joined us today. This Sunday, we heard a powerful word from Dr. Burt titled, The Hesed of the Elkanai which is translated to the everlasting love of the jealous God. We hope you are encouraged by this episode. Body of Christ. Maybe a decade ago, I think I've been here about a decade, but a decade ago, I was, I say, wandering through dry places. I mean, I was, I, I knew the apostolic truth, but I wasn't here at this church and I wasn't even in an apostolic church. Um, I was I was living I was living living holiness, but I wasn't in the apostolic church. I appreciate being surrounded by people who who understand that heaven is given to us by Christ, but we've got to live this out. He's given us the power, but we've got to live this out. Being surrounded by people who have a passion to get to heaven, to live holiness. I'm grateful for that. You know, because everyone has their challenges. But when you look around and you're surrounded by people who are trying to get to heaven, it'll, it'll, it'll give you a boost. It'll give you a lift. So I thank God for being a part of this body of Christ. I thank the Lord for each one of you and your hunger for the Lord. Give honor to my beautiful wife. I give honor to my family. I give honor to the leaders who are out. Pray that the Lord will continue to keep them. And in his presence, I give honor to, I think, I, I really thank Brother Chandler. He's an inspiration in my life. I, I, I thank the man of God. He's a blessing in my life. Um, so those things said, I got, again, I, I hope somebody can rescue me because feel this song, and it goes with what we're going to talk about this morning, and I want you to get in your mind and in your spirit this sense of worship, this sense of love for the Lord. He's a mighty God, and he loves us, and as Brother Chandler said, All he wants in return is love and worship. I mean, we can't do we can't do we can't do anything to warrant what he's given to us. But he did it because of his great love for us, because of his character and nature, and all he asks in return is that we love and worship him. And so I have this song in my mind, and it just says, I really love the Lord. I really love the Lord. 
I love him. I love him. I really love the Lord. I But listen, I really love the Lord. I really love the Lord. You don't know what he's done for me. Gave me the victory. I love him, I love him, I really love the Lord. Just can't hit that high note. (laughs) But listen, I love God because of what, see, I can't tell you about your life. I can't tell you where you've come from. I can't tell you what you've been through. I don't know the details of your struggles, but I know where I've come from. I know the challenges that I face in my daily life. I know the things that I wrestle with in my mind. I know my weaknesses. I know my struggles. And I know that God loves me despite that. And it's, it's that that makes me love him. I don't love him because of a great virtue that I have inside of me. I love him because he first loved me. It causes something to rise up inside of me and say, I love you, Lord. Thank you, thank you, thank you. If I can do anything today, what I hope to accomplish today is I hope to cause, again, I know I'm not going to tell you anything new, but I hope to cause the love that's inside of you for God to rise. And, and, And what I hope is that that love, that feeling, see, love is not, it's more than emotion, but it is, it is also an emotion. I hope that that emotion that rises up inside of you, that that's a love and a passion for God, will last you, not in this room, but outside of this room, and will permeate the areas of your life. This is what I hope, because love, true love, impacts every 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 fiber of your being, every part of your life. There's no crevices of your life that aren't touched by love. And so I hope to inspire that kind of love 
inside of you. Turn with me. There's a couple scriptures I want to turn to. I want to turn to Exodus chapter 34 and Jeremiah chapter 31. A couple scriptures that aren't commonly read. Exodus 34 verse 14 and Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 3. And after we read that, I'll give you our subject, and then I'll let you have a seat. Um, Exodus 34, 14, Jeremiah 31, and 3. Exodus 34 and 14. I'll give you the background. We're just going to read the scripture. Exodus 34, 14 says, For thou shalt worship no other god for the Lord whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. And then Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 3. You know this expression, but this is not a scripture we turn to that often. Jeremiah 31 and 3, and I'll give you a background here as well. Jeremiah 31 and 3 says, The Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. Here's a subject. We're going uh, to pray and you can have a seat. Here's the subject. And, and I need your mind today because if I get your mind, then it will sink into your heart. Here's the subject. I want you to comprehend, understand, and be moved by the couple words you don't know. The Hased of Elkanah. Let me explain, and then we're going to pray. Hased is an unusual uh, Hebrew word that doesn't have a, a, an English equivalent. But if I could put one word to it, it would be like covenant love or loving kindness. And then Elkanah is one of the many names of God. And that name, that particular name means jealous. So we're going to talk about the loving kindness of the God who's jealous for his people. We're going to talk about the Hesed of Elkanah. And if you'll wrap your mind around this, I believe it will elevate us, our worship and our love, to a different level. Pray with me, merciful God. You're so worthy of glory and honor. I magnify you for who you are. I thank you for your character and your nature, for the person that you are, God, for the attributes that you have, for the fact that you are a God of love. Love defines your character, your nature, and your interaction with us. And I love you for your love for us, oh God. And I pray, Lord God, that we will open our mind and spirit, our heart will really begin to conceive, conceptualize your great love for us. And that it will cause us to understand when challenges come, oh God, that all you're trying to do is draw us into a deeper relationship with you. You're a God driven by love and you want a response for that, your people to love you more. Help us, oh God, to understand and to respond to your love. Will you do this, God? Will you bless our minds and our spirits? Will you minister to your people this day? Will you do it for your glory, God? 
I ask this. I believe it done. Count it done already in the name of Jesus. For your glory, God. Amen. Please have a seat. So, what what I'd like to do is give you guys some background on these two words. I'm going to walk through these two words, which are part of the character of God. You know, I, I love to talk about the oneness of God. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind that if you take the whole scripture in its entirety and put it together, that you have to come out believing that God is one. There is just absolutely no way to take the two testaments together and understand that they don't conflict with one another. And uh, uh, there's no way to take the two of them together and come out with more than one person in the Godhead. It's just, it's just, it's just not even an arguable point. It's just obvious and clear when you take the entirety of the scripture together. I love to talk about the oneness of God. And I I, I suspect I won't get out of this time with you without sharing something about the oneness of God. Because it's just, it's it's, it's in every page of the scripture. But but God's attributes and his character and his nature are, are, are broad. Beyond our comprehension, we can't. We can't comprehend all of who he is. The men and women of the Bible, as they were experiencing God, they often came up with names to define their experience with God and to talk about or put a label on who God was. And so we came up with the term Elkanah. And I'm going to come to that in a moment. But Hased, that attribute of God, that the, the fact that God is love, that he's a God of loving kindness, of covenant relationship orientation is a powerful thing. From the very beginning of creation, God has been a God of Hased, a God driven by love from Genesis and beyond. All the way from Genesis to Revelation, we see the hased of God. This, this, this Hebrew term, hased, appears over 400 times in the scripture. And the vast majority of the time is interpreted mercy or written down uh, in, the, in, 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 our, in our English Bible as mercy. Probably uh, over 100 times, uh, it's mercy. The second most common is it's interpreted as loving kindness. And that's what we see in Jeremiah 31 and 3. It lets us know that from old times, he has drawn us with everlasting love, with this loving kindness, this attribute of God that drew him to us from the very beginning. And you look at the men and women of God and their experiences with God, and we can understand who, how, we can understand this hased of God. One good example in my mind of, of, of someone who understood and comprehended this hased of God. You, you, know, you know the story. Moses is called by God, and he goes up to Mount Sinai. After, he, after he's used by God to bring the children of Israel out of Egypt, 
He brings them to Mount Sinai. God has drawn his people from bondage and taken them to the mountain because that's where they're going to fellowship with God for an entire year. Entire year after their delivery. And you know all the fascinating things that happen in their journey from Egypt to Mount Sinai. But they get to Mount Sinai and they're there at Mount Sinai for an entire year. And God outlines the word of God to them. Moses goes up to the mountain twice and spends 40 days on each of those two occasions with God. And you can turn if you, if you want to turn. We're not going to turn right now to this one. Uh, in Exodus chapter 33, so in Exodus 33 is the very end of that first 40 days that Moses spends with God. And at the end of that 40 days, God tells Moses to go down because the people have already forgotten the covenant that they had established between them and God in Exodus chapter 20. They'd already forgotten that. And, and they'd already set up an idol God. And while Moses was up there, God tells him, okay, I want you to go down and I want you to, 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 to meet with the people. And so Moses is down there and he meets with the people and God says, you're going to have to leave this area. And you got to go to the land that I've set up for you. And Moses' response is, Lord, wait, wait a minute. You've told us that you're going to give us a land. you told us that you're sending us to this place. But, but God, you haven't told us that you're going to go with us. And, and, and God, if you're not going with us, then, then, then I don't want to go to that place. We, we don't care about the land. All I care about is my time with you. And, and so Moses has this exchange with God. And God, God lets him know, listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with you. And then Moses, this is his famous encounter. Moses says, Lord God, if, 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 if I really have found favor in your eyes, show me your glory. And at the end of Exodus chapter 33, God hides Moses in the cleft of a rock and says, you can't see my face, but I'm going to cover you with my hand. And as I pass by, I'm going to let you see my glory. So Moses gets to see the glory of God. And then God says, okay, now I want you to cut out these two tables of stone and I want you to go back up to the mountain, come back up to the mountain for the second 40 days. And when he comes up for the second 40 days, God gives him new uh, uh, writes out the, the, the laws on, new, on these two new tables of stone. And that's where we are in Exodus chapter 34. In Exodus 34 we see, uh, so you can, you can flip over to Exodus 34. We read verse 14, but I want you to read verses 4 through 7. I want to read verses 4 through 7 with you. So this is Moses back up on the mountain for the second 40-day encounter with God. And in verse 4 through 7, we see the Hesed of God. Very much like what Moses saw at the end of Exodus 33. In Exodus 34, verses 4 through 7, it says, and he hewed two tables of stone like unto the first. And Moses rose up early in the morning and went up into Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand the two tables of stone. And the Lord descended in the cloud. Let me stop for a second. Whenever you see, I'm kind of on this, 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 this thing right now. I want you guys to, to understand that when you see the Lord in the scripture, it is referring to a specific 
divine being. It is the name of a specific deity. So when you see Elohim, it could mean God, our God, or it could actually mean any divine being that you're looking to. So the, when you see God, uh, little g, it's still Elohim. So when you see Elohim, God with a capital G, that's our God, our Elohim. But when you see the Lord, there's no mistaking. It's speaking about a specific divine person. Moses knows the specific divine person, the specific Elohim, and he calls him the Lord. Okay? So, so, so in, verse 30, in verse 5 it says, and the Lord, the specific divine being, descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there. And that specific divine being proclaimed his name, the Lord. And the Lord passed by before him, before Moses, and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth. Keeping mercy, that word mercy is hased. Keeping hased for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, upon the children's children unto the third and the fourth generation. And understand that in that passage, when he's talking about visiting the iniquities upon uh, uh, the fathers upon the he's talking about the fact that if there's anybody that rises up against his people, he says, I will visit the iniquity of those people that rise up against my people upon them and their children to the third and the fourth generation. He's a God of love and commitment, covenant love to his people. And because of that great love that he demonstrates, he has every right later on in this passage in verse 14 that we just read. He has every right because he's acted out of love for his people. He's moved by love for his people. He's everything about him that he does in regards to his people is driven by the attribute, the character, the nature of God, of being a God of love. And if he's poured that kind of love into his people, he has every right to say when he said to them, look, you will have no other God before me. I, 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 I'm pouring my love. Into, I've committed myself to you. I don't want you worshiping any other God. So, so in, in, in Exodus chapter 20, uh, when he gives the Ten Commandments, he starts off by saying, I'm God. You'll have no other gods before me. You don't set up any idols or images because if you do that, then you're breaking this covenant that I made with you. I am driven by love for you. I expect in return you to be driven by love for me. And so we drop down to verse 14. Uh, actually, go to verse 12 of Exodus 34, verse 12 through 15, and we see this God who's covenant relationship oriented, this God that's driven by a passionate love for his people saying, look, when I give you this land, when you leave this place and you go to the land that I've given to you, I have some expectations of you. 
because we're in covenant relationship. Go to verse 12. He says, take heed to thyself, lest thou make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, whither thou goest, lest it be a snare in the midst of thee. But ye shall destroy their altars, break their images, cut down their groves. For thou shalt worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest thou make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they, and, and they go a-whoring after their gods, and do sacrifice unto their gods. And one call thee, and thou eat of his sacrifice. So when God gives the law to Moses, he lets Moses know. I, 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 I'm tempted to go here. In Exodus chapter 19, when, when they get ready to set up this covenant, God tells his, he calls the children of Israel a royal priesthood. Verses nine, chapter 19, verse 3 through 6. He calls them a royal priesthood, a peculiar people, a, a nation of priests that he set up. And he says, you're going to, if you'll do my, my will, if you'll walk in my covenant, then you're going to be this peculiar people unto me. God has this yearning for humanity. And he set his affection upon a certain people. And he's going to use those people to draw humanity unto himself. And so God has this idea, look, there's other gods out there, gods of men's imagination. And these people are deluded into following, following those gods. If you're going to be my people and I've set my affection upon you, then I, I have a, an expectation of you to be different than those other people so that they can see the love that I have poured upon you. They can see the love that I've showered upon you and they can be drawn to you and drawn to me through you. This is the responsibility of, of the people of God. This is why God saved us. This is why God delivered us. This is why God entered into covenant relationship with us was because he wanted to draw those who did not yet know him, and he's going to use you to do it. We have a responsibility as the bearers of the love of God. So Moses understands the hesed of God. God is a God of love. I got another one, and I'm going to leave from Moses in a second. When God calls Moses into, into ministry in Exodus chapter 3, and Moses meets with God at the burning bush, God tells him, look, I, I'm the God of your fathers. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the God of your father. And then he says, look, I, I've called you, and, and I've heard the cry of my people who are in Egypt. My people are down there in bondage. They've been calling out to me for years. Now the time has come. And he says, come now, Moses, and I'm going to send you. And in Exodus chapter 4, uh, verse 22 and 23, he says, when you get down there, tell Pharaoh to let my people, my son, Go, so that my son can come to meet with me in the wilderness. He calls Israel his son. Um, so, so God is a God of relationship. He thinks of us as his children. 
you, anybody in here that has a child, you know the feeling that you have. Don't mess with my kids now. So you can mess with me, and I'll probably just kind of cower down and go, oh, it's all good. I'm just going to let it pass. I'm just going to let it. But you mess with my kid, and you're going to see something different. That's the way parents feel. They will go to war to protect their kids. It's, I mean, there's no backing down. You mess with my children, and it's, it's on. That's the way parents feel. That's why I love my job, because in my job, I get to be the surrogate parent for, for parents who, who, who can't be there for their children. I get to be there during that little window of time and sort of be the surrogate daddy and protect them from evil. That's the way God feels about his children. He calls us his sons. He has this hased for us, this covenant love. But he also, if, 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 if you're a husband, you understand how you feel about your wife. Don't mess with my wife. You know, you hurt her feelings, we're going to have to have a talk. You know, because that's, what I, I mean, I've, I've set my love and my affection upon that particular woman. I mean, she, 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 she's the apple of my eye. Well, God feels that way about us. And Jeremiah understands this. In Jeremiah, we see, so Jeremiah is different than Moses. In Jeremiah's case, and, and this is a passion I, I have too. You ever heard somebody say, God is, a, is, is, is an angry and judgmental God? You know, you, you read the scripture and you see how he's constantly judging people. And they judge the character of God. But Jeremiah saw that kind of perspective. Jeremiah was a meek and mild guy. He wasn't interested in being the voice of judgment. But Jeremiah is called, in Jeremiah chapter 1, the scripture says, Jeremiah is called from his mother's womb. And he's called to be a voice of God to the people. And he's going to bring judgment, the voice of judgment upon the people. Jeremiah is not interested in signing up for this. But Jeremiah learns about the hased of God in his ministry. He starts off thinking, I don't want to be the voice of judgment. God is sending me to tell the people about the judgment that's coming upon them. Jeremiah learns that God's not the problem. The judgment that's coming upon the children of Israel is not because God is an angry and judgmental God. From the days of Moses, God had been calling the children of Israel. He, he set his affection upon, turn, you, can, you can turn if you want to, to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 through 9. This is at the very end of Moses' ministry. Moses is talking to the new generation. And he says, it wasn't because you were great in number. It wasn't because you were some big and awesome people that God decided to set his affection upon you. But God, just because of his character and nature, God decided, just because of who he is, he decided to set his affection upon you. And, 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 and he did these wonderful things for you because of who he is. That God have been working with the children of Israel from the days of Moses, somewhere around 1446 B.C. From those days all the way down to, in Jeremiah, we're dealing with about 588 
the 586 B.C. actually uh, started a little bit earlier than that, about 627 B.C., but all the way down to 586 B.C. So Jeremiah is called into this ministry, and he doesn't want to be the voice of judgment. God has been calling these people and trying to walk in covenant relationship with them, and they have been, uh, uh, they have been breaking his covenant over and over and over again. So finally, God calls Jeremiah and says, I need you to talk to the people, and I want them to understand judgment is coming, and I want them to understand why judgment is coming. Even though the judgment was coming, the judgment was not from, from the, an angry and vindictive God. God says, I love this, you can study this, in Jeremiah 11 times. 11 times in Jeremiah, the first one is in the temple sermon in chapter 7 and verse 13, Jeremiah says, uh, or the Lord says through Jeremiah, rising up early, I've sent you my prophets. I've sent you these men to tell you to turn back to me. 11 times he says, I've, I've rose up early. From early in our relationship, I've been calling you back because of my character, because of my nature, because I'm a God of love, because I want this, I yearn for this covenant relationship with you. I've been calling you back out of this covenant, out of, out of this, this, this idol worship. And I need, to make, I need to make this comment. Let me explain to you how strong this chesed that God has for you is. When you really love somebody, when, 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 when you're emotionally attached to somebody, it hurts you when they set someone else above you in their life. It's painful if they set someone else above you in their life. God is emotional. This great God, this God of heaven and earth, this omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, powerful, sovereign ruler of the universe who needs nobody. He's God all by himself, standing all alone. That God has chosen to set his affection upon you, and he's emotionally tied to you. God loves his people. And all he wants in response is a committed, loving relationship from you to him. And so when the children of Israel worship other gods, place something or someone above God, above the Lord, above Jehovah, it hurt God. God was, he's not a detached God. He's a personal God, he's truly interested in you as an individual. You got to think about this. You are valuable in the eyes of God. God says, I love, put your name there. God says, I love, put your name there. And he's emotionally invested in you and in emotionally invested in his relationship with you and your response to that love. And so flip over to Jeremiah. I just have two verses that I want to read in Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 2, because of this has said, God has every right to be Elkanah. 
He has every right to be jealous. And this is what God says in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse, oh, Jeremiah chapter 2, verse um, 12, 12 and 13. He says this. This is Elkanah speaking because he's demonstrated his said towards his people. He says, be astonished, O heavens, at this. Be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, said the Lord. He says, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And they've hewn them out cisterns, broken cisterns that have no water. He says, I love these people. And, and for the last 800, 900 years, They've gotten into the land. When I told them I was going to give them this land, I told them don't make relationships with these people in the land because they'll turn your hearts away from me. They've gotten in the land, and they've kept worshiping these idols. I'm in love with these people, and they keep turning me back for idols, broken cisterns. I'm the fountain, he says, of living water. If you want water for your soul, turn to the Lord, he says. And he says, I'm a fountain of living water, and my people have committed two evils. They've rejected me, the fountain of living water, and then they've turned to something that can't satisfy. And we can sit in judgment of the children of Israel, but be careful. Because we all tend to, tend to lean upon something else in our life. I'm leaning on my income. You know, my, my job, I got to have my job. You know, God is offended by that. Don't get me wrong. We got to work. We got to be productive. We got to make a living. But God says, I'm the source of your income. I'm the source of your strength. I'm the source of your provision. Don't put that job above him. So, so we can't sit all in judgment. We have to use this as an instructive time and say, Lord, I'm going to keep everything else under you. God, I'm going to set my affection upon you. God, I'm not going to set my wife above you. I'm not going to set my children above you. I'm not going to set my job above you. I'm not going to set promotion above you. I'm not going to set any relationship above you. God, you're number one in my life. Okay, and then flip over to Jeremiah chapter 3. We made reference to this because this scripture burns in my mind all the time. Uh, Jeremiah chapter uh, 3, verse 12 through 15. We're talking about the Hesed of Elkanah. It says, go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, return thou backsliding Israel, said the Lord, and I will not cause mine anger to fall upon you, for I am merciful, said the Lord, and I will not keep anger for forever. Only acknowledge your iniquity and, your, and, and that you have transgressed against the Lord thy God. And has scattered thy ways to the strangers under every green tree. And you have not obeyed my voice, said the Lord. Verse 13 is him describing the idolatry, setting other gods above him. That is a colorful description of what's going on. But they've set something else ahead of God. God's offended by that because he's covenant relationship oriented. He says, I got to be number one. I've poured all of myself into you. I've got to be number one. I'm not going to share you with anyone or anything else. Keep on going. Verse 14, he says, 
turn or backsliding children, saith the Lord. For I'm married unto you. And I will take you one of a city, two of a family, and I will bring you to Zion. And I will give you pastors according to my heart, which shall feed you with knowledge and understanding. When you read that passage, you can feel the hased of God. You can feel the loving kindness of God. He says, my children keep turning back from me. I've got to let them go this way down the path to feel the experience of not being with me and going into this. I've got to remove the hedge and allow them to go into captivity uh, unless they should turn. And I keep calling to them, turn from your backsliding ways. Turn back to me. You can feel the hased of God. God is a God of love. He's pouring out his love upon his people. I want to, so, so Jeremiah learns and understands that God is not a God of judgment. Yes, judgment will come and he can and will be ultimately the judge. But God is a God of love. He's pouring out his love upon people. I want to show you Hesed in one more passage. Flip over to Jeremiah's contemporary, one, two books later, Ezekiel. This scripture really gives the picture. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 16. So, so there are three prophets who are contemporary in the Babylonian captivity. There's Jeremiah, who's a prophet who's left in Jerusalem who actually sees the city when it falls and, and, and is burned by the Babylonians. There's Daniel, who's taken into captivity in 605 B.C., and he's, he's the prophet uh, who's in the palaces of, of the Babylonian Empire, giving prophecy to the kings. And then there's Ezekiel, who's a prophet in the fields of the common people who are in captivity, the Israelites who have been taken into Babylon to work in the fields in Babylon. So Ezekiel is among those common people. And Ezekiel says this in Ezekiel chapter 16. This is a long chapter. I'm not going to read all this chapter. But I do want to go down, go to verse 4 through 6. Um, and he describes, you, you, can, you can see, I want to stop in this three, three sections in this, in this chapter. So you can see the hased of God. You can see the Elkanah of God. You can see the passion with which God has relationship with his people. In Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 4, uh, the scripture says, And as for your nativity, in the day that, you, that thou was born, your navel, navel was not cut. Neither was thou washed in water to supple thee. Thou was not salted at all, nor swaddled at all. None I pitied thee to do any of these things unto thee, to have compassion upon thee. But thou was cast out in the open field to the loathing of thy person in the day thou was born. And then read verse 6. He says, and when I passed by thee, and saw thee polluted in thine own blood. I said unto thee, when thou was in thy blood, live. Yea, I said unto thee, when thou was in thy blood, 
live. So you can apply this in your life. You know the details of your life where you were out there wallowing in your sin. No, I pity you to have mercy or compassion upon you that could do anything to change your situation. But our God, the God of Hesed, the God of love, saw us when we were wallowing in our blood. And he stopped by and he said, live. We have life because God is a God of Hesed who saw us in our sin. And he said, I'm not going to let them die out there in their sin. He stepped into our life and he said, live. I don't know about you, but when I think about that, my response to that is, God, I love you. I was lost. There was nobody to reckon me. There was nobody to reconcile me. I was lost and buried under my sin. But God, you spoke into my life, and now I have true life. I love you, God. There's nobody that can be like you, God, in my life. So because God did this to the Israelites, he had an expectation. Drop down to about verse 9. I read verses 9 through 14. Not only did he say live, then he invested in them. Read verse 9 through 14. It says this. Then washed I thee with water. Yea, I thoroughly or thoroughly washed away thy blood from thee and anointed thee with oil. I clothed thee also with broidered work shod thee with badger skin, I girded thee about with, with, with fine linen, I covered thee with silk, I decked thee also with ornaments, I put bracelets upon thy hands and a chain on thy neck, and I put a jewel on thy forehead and earrings in thine ears and a beautiful crown upon your head. Thou was, uh, thus was thou decked with gold and silver and thy raiment was of fine linen and silk embroidered work. Thou didst eat fine flour and honey and oil, and thou wast exceeding beautiful, and thou didst prosper into a kingdom, and thy renown went forth among the heathen for thy beauty, for it was perfect through my comeliness, which I have put upon thee, saith the Lord. You ever been promoted? on a job or given some uh, uh, acknowledgement in your school or somebody recognized you for something good that you did, some act that you did that they believe to be exceptional. This is what God is talking about. I gave you all of those things. Whatever it is that's good about you, whatever it is that's good about me, God gave that. God not only drew me out of my sin, but then he invested in me the attributes that are anything that's positive about me. God invested that 
in me so that I could reflect his character and his nature so that others could see, not so that I could be the center of their glory, but so that they could say, well, well why are you whatever it is that's positive about you? And then the response ought to be, it's because God did this thing. It's because of the relationship that I have with God. It's because God has poured himself into me. So that ought to be the response. And then the response of the other person is, oh, I, I want to know that God. So God pours into the children of Israel and he turns them from a wandering nation into not just a nation, but they are a regional powerhouse. Under David, Israel becomes a regional powerhouse. So the nations around them acknowledge how great the nation of Israel is. And it's because God chose them back in Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 9 and decided to set his affection upon them. So God invests these things into them to make them the nation that they become. He has every right then, drop down to verse 16 through 19, um, and, and you can see that he has every right to be El Kanah. Uh, Ezekiel understands God's right to be El Kanah. Scripture says, and, uh, and, uh, I'm sorry, we'll start with verse 17. I'm on 17 through 19. Thou hast also taken thy fair jewels of my gold, of my silver, which I had given thee, and madest to thyself images of men, and didst commit whoredom with them, and tookest thy broidered garments, and coverest them, and thou hast set mine oil and mine incense before them. My meat also, which I gave thee, fine flour and oil, and honey, wherewith I fed thee, thou hast even set it before them for a sweet savor. And thus it was, said the Lord God. So God says, I invested in these people. And they took the investment that I put in them, all that I invested because of my hased to them, and they turned it around and they lavished someone or something else with their affection. God takes his covenant relationship with us extremely seriously. In fact, in the mind of God, this is a strong word. In the mind of God, when we set someone, something ahead of God, God considers that equivalent to adultery. He says there's nobody else that has done for you what I have done for you. No one else save your soul. No one else poured their spirit into you. Nobody else is worthy of that kind of affection. And he's offended by that. If you really want to get in a, a, a feeling of how emotionally connected God is to you, I encourage you to read the book of Hosea. Hosea lived out that experience. He was called by God to go and marry a woman of harlotry and to live that experience. Had three children by that woman, and then the woman left him, and then God told uh, Hosea, okay, go back 
and buy her out of her, uh, out of her harlotry and bring her back into your house again. Uh, Hosea understood God's, sense, God's emotional state of how invested he is in his people and he doesn't want his people to have anything else in their life above him. What I'm trying to communicate to you is the need to respond to the emotional investment of God, the hased of God, with a passionate love in response to him. Your, your love for him ought to be, Lord, I know what you've done for me. God, I feel your presence. God, I don't want to be any closer to anything else, anybody else, than I am with you. I love you, God with a love that's prompted by the love that you have for me. That ought to guide our steps and guide our mindset. Nothing should come between us and our God. So when Israel is at the end of this 900-year journey, and God says, I'm going to have to let them go into captivity, I'm going to have to. He lets them go into captivity for 70 years because they've been seeking after these idol gods and idol worship and walking away from covenant relationship with, with God for so long. God says, I'm going to have to let them have what it is that they're seeking after. Let them have it long enough that they'll turn back to me and they won't go back to that again. But in the midst of, this is, this, this, this is my, 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 my final major point. In the midst of dealing with his people, you can, you can feel the heart of God as he's letting his people slip into captivity. He, he, he's not doing it because he's angry and vindictive. He's doing it because I've exhausted rising up early and sending prophets to them. I've called them, and I've let these little things happen to them, and they still won't respond. I'm going to have to let them go through the school of hard knocks in order for them to actually turn back to me. In the midst of that, having to let his people go into captivity, God looks to the future. And when he looks to the future, you're included. So in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, these two prophets who are the men of the, uh, who are two of the three prophets of the Babylonian captivity. In Jeremiah and Ezekiel, God looks to the future. And, and here's a picture I want, you, want to paint. So, so this, this God of Moses, this God who has, Moses has spent 40 days on the mount with God and God writes the, the law of God on tables of stone. And in, 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 in Exodus chapter 31, and verse 18, at the very end of his first 40 days on the mount with God, the scripture says God wrote the law written with the finger of God on tables of stone. And he used those for 40, I'm sorry, for 900 years to draw the children of Israel. And they just couldn't keep covenant relationship with him. So now they're getting ready to go into captivity and God's looking to the future. And God says this in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26 and 27. And in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 
through 35, 31 through 34, 31 through 35, um, God says, look, I'm going to set up a new covenant. I'm not going to use the same old covenant, the covenant where I wrote my laws on tables of stone. I'm not going to use that anymore. I'm going to do something new. I'm going to write my laws inside of their minds. I'm going to take my finger that I wrote with, on tables of stone, I'm going to write my laws on tables of flesh. I'm going to take my laws and I'm going to write it into their spirit. So the covenant relationship that was external in the Old Testament, God says, I'm not going to lean on that anymore. He says, I'm going to do a new thing. I'm going to have an internal experience where my law is inside of their minds. My law is inside of their hearts. My law is inside of their spirit. This was God looking to the future, and he said, look, my spirit, I'm going to pour out. My spirit is going to be on the inside of them so that they won't read the law on the outside. They'll sure read my word, but they're going to read it, and it's going to be internalized into them. The God, the omnipresent, omniscient, sovereign ruler of the universe now has come as a human being, walked out the human experience, offered the perfect sacrifice on the cross, and then liberates the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit, which is the human expression of God, has now come to live inside of us. And so God has written his law in us through the Holy Spirit. In fact, if you want to get a real taste of that, read 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and you see he refers back to the experience that we read about in Exodus chapter 33, Exodus chapter 34, when Moses comes back down from the mount for the, after the second 40 days, and he's standing in the face of the children of Israel, he's glowing. And the children of Israel are like, hmm, Moses, I'll tell you what, you, know, you go talk to God, and then when you come back down, you, 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 you talk to us. But Moses covers his face with a veil because they can't stand to see that kind of glory. And then when Moses goes to be in the presence of God, then, then he removes the veil so he can, he can talk to God as a pillar, a pillar of cloud face to face like a man talks to his friend. So in, 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 in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says, the Lord, speaking of Jesus, the Lord is that spirit, that same spirit that met Moses on Mount Sinai and wrote with, wrote with his finger on tables of stone. That same spirit is Jesus Christ. And that same spirit has now come to live inside of people. God doesn't want an external experience anymore. God's plan all the way from the beginning of time was at some point I'm going to have the level of intimacy with my people where I'm going to be on the inside of them. I'm going to live inside of them. I'm going to reveal my mind to them so they can know my mind and, I'm, and, and so that my spirit being inside of them can empower them after they know my mind to live out 
that righteousness. In fact, doesn't the scripture say in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20 that the life that I live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If you read Romans chapter 8, you go down the list from Romans chapter 8 verses 1 through 16, what you find is the Spirit of God is what enables us to no longer live by the flesh, governed by the flesh. The flesh says jump and we say how high. The Spirit of God living on the inside of us is what enables us to live above our flesh. God has come and lived the human experience. He's walked the earth as a man. He's died on a cross as a man. He's, he's ascended back to the heavens as a man. He's now an eternal spirit that has come on the day of Pentecost and filled the room, filled the heart, filled the mind of the people He's established a new covenant. God now lives in the midst of his people, in the minds of his people. If you're in the, stand with me, stand with me, stand with me. If you're in the world, if you're out there in the world and wondering, is there really a God? Is is the God of the Bible a real person? Is, is there truly an omnipotent, omniscient being who cares about me, who has the power to deliver me, who, who wants a relationship with me? Can I know that God? I'm telling you that Jesus of Nazareth, was a real human being. He walked the earth during the days of the Roman Empire. He shed his blood after living a perfect, sinless life. That Jesus, the first generation church believed that Jesus would come and walk in their midst and minister to their needs. When Jesus left as a man, he said, he promised them. He said this in, in, in John chapter 14. Jesus is sitting at the table with his disciples, and he, he knows that he's getting ready to, this is the Last Supper. He knows he's getting ready to go to the cross. And he says, I'm going to go away. I'm not going to leave you comfortless. I'm going to send you another comforter. And then he goes on to say in verses 16 to 18, he says, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. The Jesus who had walked the earth during the days of the Roman Empire, who died on a cross as a man, that Jesus now is able, wants to live inside of you. See, the Holy Ghost is not some mystical, mythical thing. The Holy Ghost is Jesus of Nazareth come to live inside of you. You don't have to be out there in the world out of touch with the living God. There is no other God. There's only one God. There's only one eternal being who's God, who's the creator of heaven and earth. But that God 
has lived the human experience and that God has liberated a expression of himself which is the, the human expression of God we call it the Holy Ghost now that God can come and live inside of you you don't have to live the human experience all by yourself you don't have to go through the trials and challenges of life all by yourself the, the omnipotent God of the heavens wants to walk with you. He wants to live inside of you. And you're not going to guess when it happens. See, when it happens, it truly is a supernatural experience. It's not just you're going to say, Lord, I confess my sins. We need to do that. You're, it's not just you're going to say, Lord, come and live inside of me. He is literally going to come and live inside. And when he comes to live inside, he's going to make his announcement, I've come. He doesn't leave it up to chance. He doesn't leave you guessing, has God come to live inside of me? God will let you know, I have come and I've occupied the throne of your heart. How does he do that? He'll let you know because he'll take the most uncontrollable organ of your body, your tongue, and he'll take that tongue and he'll use it to give glory to his name. He'll speak through you in a language you never learned. And he'll be speaking something you might not understand with your mind, but God will say, I have made this my home, and he will take your tongue and speak in an unknown language. You can have that experience. And when he does, and when he does, you will feel the chesed of God in your life. You'll feel, oh my this God loves me this much. He's here with me. You will then have the ability to face your future. What challenges and mountains you think are so big that you wonder how you can face them when the omniscient God who sits on the seat of eternity has come to live inside of you. There'll be no doubt in your mind. I can face it. If you're out there, and you don't have that experience, this is your time. I'm asking you, come and, and express your love to him because he's expressed his love to you. And when you express your love and worship to him, he'll come because he inhabits the praises of his people. He'll come and he'll fill your heart with the Holy Ghost. This is your opportunity. This is your opportunity. This is an altar call. Somebody's out there that needs the Holy Ghost. It's real. It's real. It's not mystical. It's not mythical. It's not something outside of your magic. It's real. I can testify to you. It's real. The God of heaven wants to live in the hearts of men and women. He loves you that much. And if you're 
in our midst. You already had that experience. I want you to know that if you've said something, no need to be, no need to feel guilty, no, no need to feel ashamed. If you've said something else up a little bit above God, this is the time we ought to cry out to God. Say, Lord, forgive me. I've said, I've, I've placed too much of me, invested too much of me in this. God, draw me nearer to you. God, draw me closer to you. God, forgive me for having said something else above you. God, you're number one in my life. This is the time. I'm going to shut up. We're going to have altar call. It's time for, if you need the Holy Ghost, come here. We'll pray with you. If, 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 you're, if you're God's people already, this is the time for you to have one-on-one -on -one talk with God. so much for listening. Here at CPC, we are continuing to grow by the time. If you'd like to learn more,